Oh, well, good morning again. Um, the passage that we're going to reflect on this week probably could have been um, could have been included in last week's sermon because it logically and I think it, it continues the same sort of thought. It continues the same, certainly the same accusation that God had with the people and the priests. Um, and remember, it was regarding the, the whole central issue was the fact that they were dishonouring God's name. And God's name was really that encapsulation, that essence of who God is in his character. So in a sense, I could have called this what makes worship real, part two. All right? Because that's a super um, imaginative name. <laughs> However, and partly because we really need to make some effort at keeping within a reasonable time frame each week. Um, but mostly because I think this passage that we're going to deal with today really builds on, I think, but it, it kind of takes what we were looking at last week and expands on it. Um, it expands on our understanding of some of the important effects of worship. And so I decided that we would split it uh, last week to this week and we're going to give it its own title. So this week, we're going to look at Malachi chapter 2 verses 1 through 9. So grab your Bibles and have a look at that. And we're going to consider what it means, really, to live a life of awe. And in particular, pay attention to the dangers of yawning at God. Um, that's, the, that's the thrust and the, the warning that I think God's going to give in our own sense. Like, really, there's a, a sense we're going to look at today where people just sort of look at God and just yawn, Right? And right now, there's some of you who are all of a sudden thinking yawning. Chris is saying the word yawning, and you are fighting the urge to us. Like, I, this is not a good time to yawn, all right? So uh, no judgment if you do. Let's ask God for help. We need it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, again, we just come to you. Throw ourselves on your mercy. Lord, we are dull people, hard of hearing hearts that are tended towards stone. And so we need you to speak words of life to us, Lord, to refresh our hearts and bring them alive in you, open our eyes and give us ears to hear spiritual things, things beyond our own experience and our own understanding. We need you for life, Lord, so speak to us and help us, we pray this morning, through your word and by your spirit. Amen. All right. Let's dive into the first concept that we're going to see if you've already found Malachi chapter 2. The very first sentence in the English Standard Version, which is what I'm reading from, says, And now, O priests, this command is for you. All right? I think I've got a slide for it, just so that it's fresh in your minds. Now, O priests, this command is for you. All right? So right from the outset, we can see that God is zooming in on his focus that he had from last week, which was very broad It encapsulated or included all the people of um, Israel. And now he's zooming his focus in onto the role of the priest in Israel's life of worship. So before we go too far into unfolding what God has to say to these priests, I thought it might be really good for us to make sure that we get a little bit of a picture in understanding of who these priests actually 
were. And this is going to be particularly relevant, I think, as we sort of get to the second half of this time together, as we unpack the passage and we start to unfold its implications to us. Right? Because right now, you could sort of say, well, I'm reading through Malachi chapter 2, and now, O priest, this command is for you. And you could easily think, well, let's just skip this bit, right? Because I'm not a priest in Malachi's time. Um, but let's just understand exactly who, who God was speaking to. Right, so we're going to think about the Levitical priest for a moment that, that's being referred to. And the priests served in the temple... And they were always selected from within the clan or the, the family group or the tribe, often referred to, of Levi. Um, their patriarch, their family head that they were sort of ancestrally connected to was um, Levi, one of the 12 sons of Israel. And that family was particularly chosen or set aside amongst all the different clans of Israel and they were set aside to serve in the ceremonial duties of the, the life of worship of the nation of, of Israel. Okay, So there were religious rituals and there were religious worship rites that the people did. And the clan, the family of Levi, served as priests to help the whole nation worship God as he prescribed. And there were three classes of priests in general. All right, So there was a, someone who was called a priest. If you were a priest, you were a person who performed religious duties and presided over ceremonies as people came to worship God. Uh, so you were a priest. Then you could have been a high priest, a high priest or a chief priest, sorry, a chief priest. A chief priest was a person who was kind of preeminent or they were in charge of a bunch of other priests and they usually had particular skills or particular authority in certain areas of the nation's Worship, And then after the chief priest, there was the high priest. The high priest was a person who performed the Levitical duties that were laid out for high priests and they presided over all the other actions of the priests and the people as they worshipped God. And they were usually, that high priest was usually chosen from the family group, the, the lineage of Aaron, who was Moses' brother. All right, Bit of a family history there. Um, but, but put that aside for a moment. In general, all the classes of priests, so whether you were just a standard priest, a chief priest, or a high priest, really, all priests served as a mediator between people and God. All right? What I mean by that was they fulfilled two primary purposes if you were a priest in Israel's time. Firstly, they represented God to the people. All right? So if you were just... Um, you know, Joe Blow, who lived in some little town in Israel and you wanted to worship, uh, you, you couldn't really approach God just on your own terms. You, you needed to go through some type of mediator. And you went to a priest. All right? The priest represented God's purpose and direction to the nation, usually by instructing the people through God's word, letting them know what God had said and what they should do about it. And so they were mediating in that sense, representing God. But also, a priest stood as a mediator because they stood as a representative of the people. All right? They were chosen from among the nation by the clan of Levi, and they would approach God. So they represented the people back to God. And often they would uh, perform certain religious rites on behalf of other people. 
So they were mediators in that sense. And this is the way that played out in Malachi's particular day. So remember, thinking of Malachi chapter 2, verse 1, God's zooming in on the priests in his day, and they're saying, I've got a special message just for you. So how is this playing out in Malachi's time? Um, There's a long history, and we just don't have time to deal with it, but let me try and snapshot it a little bit. About 170 years before Malachi wrote those words down, about 170 years earlier than that, the southern nation of Israel had been sent off into exile. The, The nation of Judah had been sent into captivity, sent into exile, and they felt completely abandoned and completely rejected by God. They were in a foreign land. Everything that they'd known about their status of relationship with God as a chosen people, a royal priesthood that they were, had been completely destroyed and stripped away and they thought that there was nothing left for them. But God told them otherwise and here is a really well-known verse in the actual context that it was given in because God said to those people, Jeremiah 29.11, There they were in exile, absolutely feeling abandoned. God has has rejected us and God said, hey, listen, I know the plans I have for you. All right? They are plans for welfare, not plans for evil. And those plans will give you a future and a hope. And so for 70 years, the people waited for this hope. They waited in exile and captivity, hopeful that God would come through with what he had promised them, that his plans would become evident and real, and that one day he would prosper them, and one day he would lift them up again and make them a great nation as they had once been. Then after 70 years in exile, God's people returned once again to the land of Israel. They were hopeful that now God will fulfill his plans for them, right? The city of Jerusalem was all but destroyed. The grand temple of Solomon that had once been one of the great wonders of the world was nothing more than a pile of blackened stone and ash. The people came home to nothing. And so what did they do? Well, they rebuilt. The walls went back up. Nehemiah 4, 6. So we built the walls and all the walls were joined together into the half thereof for the people had a mind to work. They just got to building. The temple foundations were laid. You can read about that in Ezra 3 and 12. It says that many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, Solomon's temple, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundations of this house, this new house being laid, though some shouted aloud for joy. And then finally, after many obstacles, the temple was completed. You can read about it in Ezra chapter 6. Finally, worship, worship as God prescribed worship to be, had once again returned to Israel. And now a hundred more years have passed before we reach Malachi chapter 2. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, had the priests continued to honour God before the people? 
Back in Ezra chapter 6, if you read that, it says that all the Levitical priesthood was put back in place. They started worshipping again. They, they fulfilled the Passover for the first time in almost 200 years. Had they continued to honour God before the people? Had the priests lived in perpetual awe of who God was? Had they responded to God's call for zeal, for worship? So let's read. We're about to find out. Malachi chapter 2 verses 1 through 9. I've got a slide on the screen for you. It's a little bit small. You can read it along. I would much prefer if you had your Bibles open in front of you, just in case I just put my own text in there or something. All right? Malachi chapter 2. We're going to read from verses 1 through 9 today. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honour to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring. And we referenced this last week, if you were here, remember? And spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instructions. All right? That's God's word. And we need to take that seriously. So let's just reflect on a little bit. Um, I was thinking about this passage in the nine verses and, I, and it all of a sudden struck me that he's talking about priests all the way through, but, but could you see that there are, there are two different ways that he talks about priests in this? Because not all priests are priests in, in Malachi's sense here. All right, these nine verses really contrast two different types of priests that God has in mind. There's the priest of Malachi's day and then there's this ideal priest who God kind of typifies or, or describes as referring to Levi as the pure example of what the priesthood should have been like. And you can see those two types of priests referred to throughout the passage. And just, if you can make it out, I've kind of put that passage in three little clusters of verses to try and help signify. Just go back to sorry, the, the other page. Yeah, um, you, you can see there's three clusters of verses there. And hopefully you can see that. And what we're going to do is that the first and the last 
cluster really contain descriptions of and, and warnings to uh, the corrupted priests of Malachi's day. And the middle cluster, in the middle there, it contains a description of a true priest. A priest like Levi, it says. And more beautifully, I think, if you were to read this passage through a New Testament lens, what you're going to see is a beautiful description of the ultimate priest, Jesus. Right? So what I want to do is take those clusters in turn and just make a few observations from from each of them. So what we'll do first is the corrupt, the corrupt priest, right? which is the first and the last cluster. And you can see it on the page, but, but follow along in your Bibles in front of you. Um, paper Bibles are fantastic. Digital Bibles um, also great as long as they're in aeroplane mode so they don't um, interrupt you with Facebook updates. Um, the corrupt priests, let's think about that for a moment. Look at some of the characteristics. I'm just going to list them and point them out to you so that you can see them. Verse 1, we see the first characteristic of a corrupt priest. Verse 1 says that they have a refusal to listen. This corrupt priest will not listen. Now that could mean a few things. It could mean that they don't listen to people. I think in the context, this priest, this corrupt priest refuses to listen to God. Uh, they'll act independently from what God's thoughts and plans and instructions are. Right? That's the first characteristic. Second characteristic, you can see it in verse 1 and you can see it in verse 2. They have a refusal to take it to heart. And that needs a little bit of explanation. Take it to heart. You see, the heart referred to in Malachi, in fact, pretty much all the Bible, when it talks about the heart, we need to be careful there because we tend to in our European, Western, modern world, we interpret the word heart to mean something quite different to what the writers of the Bible meant. So we usually use the word heart, especially taking something to heart, we often are thinking about emotions, right? That's why we're coming up to Valentine's Day very soon. We're going to have lots of hearts. We're going to have lots of emotive things. We're going to talk about how we feel. All right. When the Bible talks about the heart, it doesn't talk about the seat of emotion or the source of emotion like we in the West often refer to it as. In Eastern cultures, both then and now, in fact, many cultures around the world today, the heart is not the, the source or the, or the foundation of our emotions, but it's the source and the foundation of our identity, who we are, our will, our choice, right? So the heart is the centre of identity and will. God was not rebuking them because they didn't feel the importance of this command. He wasn't saying you didn't take it to heart. That's the way we use the word, isn't it? We say something to someone and they get offended and you say, oh, you don't take it to heart, right? That's not what God was reprimanding them for. He wasn't rebuking them because they didn't feel the importance of his command. He was rebuking them because he wanted their identity to be altered and shaped by his command. He wanted them to be different people because of what he said, and they weren't. They weren't being changed by it at all. So he rebuked them, a refusal to take it to heart. If you find verse 8, you'll see another description of this type of corrupted priest. It says, they had turned aside from the way. The way. 
There's a certain way that God had asked his people to walk and the priests had turned aside from it. Pretty self-explanatory. But also in verse 8, compounding the problem, God says, not only have you turned aside from the way, you have turned others aside from the way. Right? They had left the way and in fact had get other people. They, they pointed other people away from what God had wanted. And verse 9, they showed partiality in how they administered God's instruction. This is a whole, a whole sermon series on its own. But let me assure you, God has nothing good to say in any of the Bible to anyone who shows partiality. He hates it. There's something about treating people by different criteria that God despises. And these, these priests were doing that. All right. So there's some, there's some characteristics of them. But let's stay in that little cluster for a moment. Because this same cluster of verses tells us what was at risk for these priests if they continued to be like this. So verse 2 says they would be cursed. Strong words, aren't they? We don't have time again, but if you were to look for a deeper understanding of what curse God is referring to, just jot down Deuteronomy chapter 28. Go read that. It refers to a covenant a covenant that God had with the people. Now, covenants are a big study on, the, on their own, but really, in summary, all covenants in the Bible were a, um, a contractual obligation, it, it, almost a legal relationship that was going to be set up, usually between God and people. Often, it could be used between people one person, another person, or groups of people with each other. But a covenant, um, it, it's specified. It was in writing often. It was, it was written down or it was sort of sealed with a type of ceremony of some sort. And it required um, binding actions. So certain promised actions between one party towards the other. Sometimes it was um, both parties had certain obligations they had to fill between each other. But this covenant also included, written down in it, what would happen if you keep the covenant and what would happen if you broke the covenant. And they're called covenantal blessings or covenantal curses. And the situation that God's talking about, he's basically saying to his people, hey, listen, we entered, it up, we entered into a covenantal agreement with each other and you broke it. And now, all the curses of breaking the covenant are about to come down on you. That's what he's saying to them. Big study on its own, but that's what he's referring to. Um, you get a, an insight into how serious this is because of the language that God uses. You see in verses 3 and you see it in verse 9, if you look at it, where God starts to refer to their blessings and their acts of worship as being little more important than dung. You know, then, then the excrement. And it says that, in fact, everything that they try to do in worship is going to come back into their faces just like their faces are being rubbed in it. Like the dung of their offerings, they would be removed. Now, what happened in the Old Testament sacrificial system, there was, if you go back to Leviticus and read about all the rules about how to 
do these sacrifices, there was a really important thing, which was basically certain parts of the animal were not acceptable to God. Usually the, you know, the intestines, the stomach, um, the bowel, all of that was often referred to as the dung. Uh, offal, right? And it would all be removed before the sacrifice was presented, and it had to be taken out of the city taken out of the temple because it was not acceptable to God and there was a special place where it was all to be thrown. It was unclean. And God's saying, just like all the dung, all the offal, all the excrement that wouldn't be acceptable to God, that's, that's what you'll worship and that's what you're going to be like if you continue this and I'm going to remove you from my presence because you're not worthy to be in it. Right? This is harsh stuff. So we need to just ask the question for a moment, though. Is God, or was God, just being vindictive? Was he just sort of, was his nose out of joint a little bit, and he just says, well, if you're going to treat me like that, I'm going to treat you like that. Right? Is that what God's like? Well, we can see a hint here that it's not. All right? This should not surprise us. God was not getting back at them. Because even though God was threatening to do some pretty harsh stuff to them, his intention was shaped by his desire to refine and perfect them. Have a look at verse 4. He's doing all of this stuff, he said, because he wants his covenant with Levi to stand. He says, I need to do this because this is important. God wanted his covenant to endure. God has always been willing to scrape away the dross to make sure that the gold was, less, was refined. In fact, you could go to any number of verses throughout the Bible to get pictures of God being referred to as like a refiner. But you don't even have to leave Malachi to find that. Malachi chapter 3, verses 3 and 4 says this. You can turn it if you want to. Just get ready to go back to chapter 2 shortly. Malachi 3, verse 3 says that He, referring to God, will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in days of old and as in former years. God wanted the priests and God wanted his entire nation to live and worship in awe of who he is. And so to help us see what that's like, he paints a picture of it. And now we're going to go to that middle cluster. All right. So if that's the corrupted priest, let's just see what God contrasts them against. And that is the true priest. The true priest in the middle cluster. Well, what are they like? What are their characteristics? We start by saying that just in the opposite way as the corrupted priest wouldn't take to heart... The true priest does take to heart the Lord's purposes. Right? They are completely shaped in their identity around who God is and what he desires. It's the opposite of what we see in verse 1. But then in verse 5, we can see that their relationship with God was marked by finding the source. In God, they found their source of life and peace. Life and peace. God has always had this intent. This is an old covenant. We've always um, heard this morning referred to a new covenant. 
you know, the, the table as Jesus sat with his disciples. And he said to them, this is the blood of my new covenant. God was making a new agreement. But just in case you think that the old agreement was sort of wrong, and now this is a better one, at its essence, God is always the same. He doesn't change. His desire has always been life and peace. We can see it here in the Old Testament. You can certainly see it in the New Testament. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus speaking, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. It's always been about life and peace. John chapter 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. This is what Jesus was talking about. He desires life and peace. And that's what this true priest had centered their life around. We also see in that middle cluster that their lives are ordered around a deep and abiding respect or reverence, or maybe your translation says fear of who God is. We often just think about fear in the negative context, like I'm scared of something. But more often than not, this is a term that's used for fear where my life is shaped around a deep sense of reverence and awe for someone or something. All right? Some of you know that I, on occasion, catch snakes. Believe me, I have a fear of snakes, but not like most people do. Not scared of them, but I know what they can do to you. So I treat them with a great deal of respect. A great deal of reverence. You walk into a situation with any dangerous animal and just treat it flippantly, more than likely you're going to end up in hospital. Yeah. All right? I can tell you that from experience. <laughs> Even more so if you walk into the presence of God and treat him flippantly, like he's of little importance, like he doesn't matter that much. I love the sense that Jesus says, hey, you can call me friend. God is your friend. He is. But he's also a consuming fire. What's your relationship with fire like? It's helpful. We enjoy it. If it's cold and you're out camping, light a fire, we want to get closer to it. I hope you've got enough sense to not to go, I know what would be a great idea to get really warm. Get in the fire, Right? We all, that just seems foolish to us, but we know we can have a good relationship with fire, but you better treat it with respect. It will burn you. The people needed to have a deep and abiding respect and reverence and fear of who God is. You can see that in verse 5. Verse 5 also says that these priests stood in awe of God. And that's the sense of fear that we need to understand. A sense of awe of who God is. Verse 6 says that they spoke truth, they lived truth, and they ministered in truth. And verse 7 says that they are God's messengers. All right. So let's try and pull this all together and try and see of how it makes sense for us, right? Because what God is saying to the priests in Malachi's time is that you need to live in a sense of awe. But is this message one we can dismiss as only relating to the priests of Malachi's day? God very specifically says, O priests, this command is for you. Are we off the hook? 
Because as we can see here, there are very real dangers that come with yawning at God, right? We are meant to be in awe of God because God is so awesome. So what do we do with Malachi chapter 2 verses 1 through 9? Now, no doubt, I think the first people that we should be thinking about are the priests of Malachi's day, right? They served in this post-exilic temple, and we should be thinking God had a very specific word to them. But these principles extend past them. And to do that, we need to probably just revisit the idea of priest for a moment, because the problem exists in the mental picture that we sort of dredge up into our minds when we think of the word priest. And this is what we think priests normally look like. Right? If I say priest, more than likely you've got some sort of mental picture and it looks something like that. Whereas in reality, because of the curtain-tearing work of Christ at the cross, and he as our great high priest, this is what priests normally look like. They look like people like you and me, right? That's, that's a better picture, a better image. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So here this morning, if you know Christ, if you've rested your life and hope into him, you are a priest to our high God. Priests are everyday people who look a lot like you and me. People whose eternal identities have been snatched all right, from the kingdom of darkness and they've been brought into the kingdom of his son. People who have been resurrected from the dead. Who are new creations. Given new life, new hope. They are the priests to our God. If we were to continue reading in 1 Peter, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Yes. Alright? That's your identity this morning. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So all of a sudden, this should worry us because if we go back to Malachi chapter 2 verse 1 again, and now, O priests, this command is for you. Right? Can we afford to ignore this? Now maybe at a push... Maybe we could just look at this passage through our New Testament lens. Yes, we're priests, Chris, I get that. Hallelujah. Amen. But we kind of squint our eyes a little bit at it and we just kind of push the spotlight off ourselves and we place them on pastors, ministers, church leaders. Aren't they kind of like our priests, right? I mean, we've all heard of corrupt pastors. Hopefully you know a couple of True pastors, stumbling as they might be. Well, let me just say that those who are called to shepherd the flock of God are very much under the scrutiny of God. Very much so. We, 
as pastors and elders in this church and beyond this church, anyone who's called themselves and been called to a shepherd of God's flock will one day stand to give an account for how they cared for God's precious lambs. James chapter 3, verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for, why? For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So absolutely, pastors should be very much taking this command to heart. But does that mean the rest of you are off the hook? Do we just wrap it up now? We need to. Just go home and have lunch because this doesn't really apply, right? Wrong. God's word of warning and hope in Malachi extends to every single one of us. All of us. Jesus is our perfect high priest. The one who's fulfilled all the requirements of the covenant. Jesus is our mediator. The one who represented God to us. And who took our place as a substitute for the just punishment that we deserve before a righteous and holy God. He's our great high priest, our mediator. But he has called us to be priests to our God also. So we can take that middle cluster there and we can apply it to us. We, we take to heart God's purposes, being completely shaped in our identity around who God is and his purposes. Our relationship with God is to be marked by finding the source of our life and peace in him. Verse 5. Verse 5 also, our lives are to be ordered around a deep and abiding respect and reverence and fear for who God is. Verse 5, we must also stand in awe of God. Verse 6, we are the people who are called to speak truth, to live truth and to minister truth in our world. And verse 7, we are called to be God's messengers. People who speak for God in this world. So here's how we finish. And I want to read to you just one verse from Psalm 111. Verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. So here's how I would sum up today's sermon. It's on the screen. Don't yawn at God. It's dangerous. Don't yawn at him. Instead, a life of awe is the beginning of a life of wisdom. The life of awe is the beginning of a life of wisdom. And it's secondly, the foundation to a life as an effective witness to the gospel of life and peace. So we can talk about all sorts of strategies for living a life of wisdom. We can talk about all sorts of strategies for a life of effective witnesses in this world to the life and the peace that are found in the gospel. But it begins here. It begins with us living a sense of awe about who God is, right? Not to yawn at, but to be shaped by, to take it truly to heart. Well, we need some help with it. Right? I'm so grateful that we've not been left alone. We have the word. We have the spirit. And I have my brothers and sisters to gather with me regularly, saying, come on, let's walk the way together. Yep. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for meeting with us in our need. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he is the mediator of our faith, that he met us in our need, that he represented us to you and took the punishment that we deserved. But in him, we see what it means to have a father who loves us, who has not abandoned us. Lord, we want to be priests to you that walk rightly, justly, just as Levi did. So help us, we pray. Strengthen us for the task ahead. Give us courage. Help us to find our rest and our forgiveness in you as we stumble through this. And we pray this with gratitude and with awe. Amen.